Well, good morning. It's good to be together, and I want to ask that you would turn to the New Testament today, to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 today. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As many of you know, we have been working through a series uh, this fall we're calling The Big Picture. And we, we're kind of tracing the, the, the grand narrative of the Bible, the big point, the big picture, the overarching narrative of the Scriptures, uh, knowing that in these 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, these are not a random collection of books that are just put together for our benefit. They are sovereignly put together to tell us about the work of God. Uh, one story certainly comprised of many different individual stories and different things going on throughout these 66 books. But when you begin in Genesis chapter 1 and you get to Revelation uh, at the end, you realize that this has been one major story from beginning to end. And what we're trying to do is kind of just do a quick flyover of the Bible and try to see kind of the big chunks of Scripture and how all of this really ties the, the storyline together. And so hopefully it's been helpful to you as we think through kind of the big picture. Uh, uh, in November, first Sunday in November, we're going to begin the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to work through the Gospel of Luke, and so while we're doing a big picture now, we're going to do a deep dive then, okay? And so we're going to dive into the Gospel of Luke. It's a long gospel. It's a long chapter with long chapters, uh, but we're going to work our way through that book uh, for a period of time. And so while we're doing the big picture now, we're going to do a deep, deep dive then. And looking forward to that time uh, as we uh, get to November. But so far in this series, we, we've looked at several things. We've looked at the creation We've looked at the fall, uh, the, the reality of sin coming into the world. We've looked at the promise that God made to Abram and how that expanded throughout the rest of the, the narrative of the Bible. We looked at the exodus of how God brought his people out of Egypt, out of bondage uh, through his servant Moses. And then last week we covered a big chunk of the Old Testament as we looked at the, the remnant, this idea of God's remnant and how he has, has continued to preserve for himself a people all the way throughout the Old Testament, even at their worst. He takes them out of the land, puts them into exile, and brings them back to the promised land, and yet uh, God is still being so gracious uh, to his people. Well, today we turn to the New Testament and what we would call fulfillment as we look at the beginning uh, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to read, we're going to look at a lot of different texts today, but I want to really camp out in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and let that really be our uh, base of operations today, even though we're going to be looking at other texts, uh, because that is necessary concerning, considering the, the, the topic that we're looking at this morning. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, this is the word of the Lord. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Lord, would you now allow your word to have its impact and effect upon our lives that we may be changed by it and that you would be glorified in it? God, would you help us understand this big picture? Would you help us see clearly today how in Jesus Christ all your promises have been fulfilled and will be 
fulfilled in the end. Father, would you help us see that and would you help us to be changed by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we live in a day when digital media has all but ruined our ability to wait patiently. Just think of the number of times this week you have been frustrated because of low internet speeds. I mean, just bringing that up right now irritates some of you because you know how frustrating that's been, right? Even, you know, just, just it, it, it can cause a dilemma. And I feel you on that. I mean, I'm, in the, I'm the one usually in the office constantly unplugging and plugging back up the router, trying to get the internet speed just to go one, in, or one second faster. We just have a second faster, right? I mean, we're really a sad culture. I mean, remember the days of dial-up, right? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Dial-up. Some of you remember the days when there was no such thing as an internet. But life today has become data and Wi-Fi sufficient or needed for whatever reason uh, it, it's just the reality in which we live and so we might as well embrace it. Uh, but think about that. So much of what we do today, when the least little drop in internet speed takes place, so much of what we do comes to a halt. And some of you are sitting there thinking, not for me, but for most of you, that can be true. We do not like to wait, even at the half second speed, do we? we we're not a people that like to wait, but waiting is something that God often calls us to do. By the time we get to the New Testament, God's people had been waiting a very long time. You get to the end of the Old Testament, and then you have virtually 400 years of silence. Not 400 years of inactivity, there was a lot going on in those 400 years, but you have 400 years of virtual silence from the Lord of any kind of revelation, any kind of, of, of biblical instruction until you get to the New Testament. It had been approximately 2,000 years or so, I'm painting in broad brushstrokes this morning as far as the, the number of years go, but it had been several thousand years since God had made that promise to Abram. And now 400 years since the Lord had directly spoken. But when we open the pages of the New Testament, we realize that the time has come and God's promise of a deliverer, the savior of a king, or as Isaiah puts it, of this servant, that he has arrived. So God's promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, all the way through the prophets have now found their culmination in this one person we know as Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself understood that. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 24, when we go through the Gospel of Luke, that'll be about three or four years from now when we get to chapter 24, right? Uh, so you won't remember this, but I think it's an important reminder for us today of, of Jesus' own perspective about who he was. This was after the resurrection, and there was a stir of, of, of going about in that day after the resurrection about this person who had come and died and now there was question about him, empty tomb. And there was two disciples, if you will, walking down the road to Emmaus, 
talking and walking, and Jesus draws near to them. And in Luke chapter 24, he comes upon them, and he, he begins in verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Now he had kind of disguised himself supernaturally so that they didn't understand or weren't able to see who he truly was. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Notice what they say next. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We, we had hoped that he was the one that the Old Testament had spoken of. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they did not, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then notice what Jesus says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Jesus obviously understood very clearly that he was and is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. So that's the, really the big idea that we have this morning as we come to this text, as we come to Mark 1, as we look at the New Testament, as we now put all the pieces together that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So as we consider this text this, today, what, with, with the arrival of Jesus, with the coming of Christ, with the, the arrival of the Messiah, the promised King, the promised Deliverer, what is it that we learn now about God's work of redemption? There's so much that we could say, but I just wanna camp out here in this text this morning and really begin to unpack what, is, what it is that we see in this great plan of redemption. We're gonna point out several things this morning, beginning with the first one. The first thing that we see in this great work of redemption is that God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect. From the last activity of the Old Testament recorded to the first words of the New Testament, as I said earlier, that, that span of time was somewhere in the range of 400 years or so. Think about that. The United States of America is not even that old. A long period of time has gone by. So we're talking significant period of time with, without any kind of recorded activities, but yet we know things were happening. It was this same time period of, of silence from a biblical revelation standpoint. There was, there was no direct word of God being given at that point, but this, this time was, was filled with activity. It was the time that Alexander the Great was conquering. The, he had come onto the scene and the Greek culture began to really take hold and shape the world. So even though there was silence biblically, God was sovereignly moving. 
And after 400 years, this silence was broken. We read here in Mark's gospel, go back to verse one of chapter one of Mark, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And you could go to Matthew's gospel and you can read all the way through that lineage and, and you can see name after name after name after name after name that Jesus is the one that had been promised. And Jesus comes here and beginning in his ministry. Mark is a very fast-paced gospel, and so you don't get a lot of the details that, of, his, of his birth and, and that narrative as you do in Matthew and Luke's gospel. But here in Mark's gospel, it's very fast-paced, kind of very, very big overview of, of, of what's going on. You see there in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus is now on the scene, that he's begin, beginning his ministry, and he's saying the time is fulfilled. The time has come. A new era has dawned. The promises of God are no longer seemingly lost in the darkness. Later on, the apostle Paul, who wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter four, verse four, put it this way, said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, so that we may receive adoption as sons. At this point, it had been thousands of years back that God had made that declaration in the garden to the serpent in Genesis 3:15. I will put enmity with you, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Thousands of years later, this serpent-crushing deliverer has arrived. From Genesis 3 forward, there had been this promise of one who would come, this deliverer, this one who would come from the line of David, this one who would reign on David's throne, not for decades, but for eternity. And this is the one who the people of God had long anticipated. You saw it in the words of the disciples to Jesus, even though they didn't understand who he was at that moment, on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that he was the one to come redeem us. And Jesus says, I am. I'm the one that the Old Testament declared and pointed to, God's promises were now coming to pass. And here in Mark chapter one, but before we get really into Jesus's ministry, we see that there was a man named John who had come along, John the Baptist. He appeared. And it's interesting because the Old Testament had promised that he would appear. So again, we see that God had promised that, there would, that one would come and prepare the way of the Lord, that this one would come and prepare the way before Jesus, and exactly as was promised, he came. John the Baptist came and, and was that forerunner, preparing the way of the Messiah. But notice something peculiar here in verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel. After John was arrested, John was a cousin to Jesus. He was the one, again, as I said, the Old Testament prophesied would come and pave the way forward for the Christ, and he did just that. But now he's in jail, and eventually he would be beheaded. The context in which Jesus entered the scene was, was, was a violent context. As Jesus came into Galilee, this town was not some quite sleepy village, quiet, sleepy village off the beaten trail. It served as a major crossroads between the east and the west. And as one commentator put it, he said, we must resist the temptation to picture the beginning of Jesus's ministry as being centered in some gentle, quiet backwater community. But rather he began at a place of conflict, threat, 
racial mixture and busy activity. Not much is said here about the details of that violent context, although we see a glimpse of it as John is arrested. But it's that context in which Jesus enters the scene and begins his ministry. It wasn't going to be like so many thought. Jesus didn't come onto the scene to a thriving, flourishing, God-honoring Jewish environment where all was great and all was well. Jesus enters the scene during the heyday of the Roman Empire. The Jewish people were really being oppressed. The tension was high. It was not going to be an easy time, but the time had come. A few things that we should pause here and be reminded, encouraged by. First is this, is that God's timing must always be trusted. God's timing must always be trusted. God sovereignly controls the affairs of human history. He raises up kings and he brings them down. The, the, you, you just look throughout the course of human history and God's fingerprints are all over it. And yet we struggle sometimes understanding how he's working and his timing and things. Peter says it well in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some, of you, as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we see there just even in Peter's words that God's timeline is different than our expectations at times. We often grow impatient with the Lord, don't we? We wait and we wait and we wait and we wonder sometimes if God even cares about our waiting. God's timing is something that is often difficult to understand, yet no matter the time that passes us by, we can always trust that his timing is faithfully precise. His timeline is often much longer timeline than we're used to because he's operating on a much grander scale than we tend to operate. So regardless of what is happening at the time, the, the promises God had made in the past, though thousands of years removed, are the very promises God keeps because he is faithful to his word. Regardless of the surrounding situation, regardless of the violence that was going on, regardless of the oppression, regardless of John now being imprisoned, regardless of all the negative that was going on, the faithfulness of God was on display as Jesus comes. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus arrives on the scene. And God's faithfulness is on display. Nothing would hinder that. You know, friends, when we step back and we read this book, I think one of the helpful things about doing a, a big picture overview is, is when we consider the big picture, we can see just in, in, in a small way, that we can just see the faithfulness of God. We, when we go back and we consider the covenants that he made, the promises that he made, and we get to the New Testament, we see that now these promises have indeed been fulfilled over thousands of years of promise, now fulfilled in Christ. We get impatient after three seconds. So we can just have a, a reality check of sorts and we can be reminded and, and have a perspective changed a bit that God, no matter what we think, no matter what we experience, no matter what we feel at the moment, God is faithful 
to his promises. Because this is one of the reasons I believe that God gave us this book was so that we can see his faithfulness throughout. It was so that we can look, in, look to the past. We can, we can look to the past and we consider our circumstances in the present and we can still say, won't he do it? Won't he be faithful to his word? Won't he be faithful to all that he's promised because he is the Lord who will be faithful to the things that he has promised. Even when things don't pan out like we had hoped, like we had planned, God's plan never fails. And we can cling in hope, even in the midst of a study of a big picture the big picture of God's redemption. We could be reminded that even as God works on this big canvas of of time, bringing about his sovereign purposes, we can be encouraged by that because it shows us the faithfulness of God. Not only do we see that God's timing must always be trusted, we, number two, should see that God's faithfulness cannot be hindered. God's faithfulness cannot be hindered. There were so many roadblocks, seemingly seemingly roadblocks that took place throughout the Old Testament. And every turn you make, there's yet another what seems to be a roadblock. Well, here's yet now another problem that's gonna cause God's promise to somehow be derailed. I mean, think about that. Think, I mean, we could give a bunch of different examples, but imagine living in the generations, and there were many generations, between the Old and New Testament. I mean, you're back in the land, temple had been rebuilt, but things were not well. The temple wasn't even up to the standard of the, the, the first one. It was a little less than, than what they had known before and the, the worship of the people was still corrupted and the, now the, the Roman Empire was on the scene and they were being oppressed. And so, so that, those generations between the people living in that time period, you just imagine what they experienced. Yet another roadblock, yet another dilemma, yet another problem to God's promise being realized. Even the day in which Jesus comes preaching was a day in which was marked by hostility and tension. Think about that. Even at his birth, his family had to flee to Egypt early on because of threat. Now his cousin was in jail. But the word of God and the work of God continued to move forward. Think about that for a moment just in our lives in general. Do we really believe? Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about this. Just think about the many potential problems that could have derailed the promises of God in the Bible, yet none of them did. Do we really believe that roadblocks in our lives are able to derail God's purposes and plans? Do you think think that, that things can happen in your life that will alter the plan of God for you? This is why it's so crucial to have a high view of the sovereignty of God because nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can alter his plans. God doesn't have a plan B because he doesn't need it. God is faithful to his plan. And even when it seems as if things can't continue to possibly go forward, God is faithful. He is good. You read the Bible and there's any number of disappointments and tragedy and sin 
that would seem to, to have derailed God's promise, but it never does. In fact, it's often through those disappointments, it's often in the midst of those tragedies, it's often in the midst of those, what we would think is a roadblock that God actually works to bring about his purposes. Friends, it's just a reminder to us that if we can trust God on a grand scale like this, we can certainly trust him in the very minute details of our own lives. God is at work in the big plan, in the big picture, and he's at work in the deep details of our lives. Just thinking about the ministry of Jesus as, as the time has come now for him to arrive and begin his work, just think about ministry today. I think oftentimes we have maybe what I would call a sanitized view of ministry. Especially in, in the Western culture and Western mindset, we, we think of ministry of, of always being nice and neat and clean, easy. But throughout history and throughout the rec recorded revelation we have in the Bible, it seems that the ministry of the gospel flourishes in times of tragedy and turmoil and tension. Friends, we should not see persecution or oppression or any kind, any kind of challenge as a hindrance to the gospel, but as an opportunity for the gospel to continue to advance and for an opportunity for God to show off his faithfulness. So give us confidence to engage in ministry. And when things get hard and ministry gets difficult and challenging, it shouldn't cause us to, 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 to draw back. It should cause us to continue to go forward in faithfulness because God's purposes cannot, cannot fail. So we see that God's timing is always perfect. Second truth that we see in this fulfillment of Jesus' coming is that God's kingdom is present. God's kingdom is present. Notice he says he comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Prophecies that pointed to his arrival and the work that God would accomplish is now present. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is, it is now, it is before us. By the way, the kingdom of God is, is one of the most favorite things Jesus would often speak of and speak to. Several things we could say about the kingdom. I just want to point out a couple this morning. Think about the nature of the kingdom of God. This phrase, kingdom, kingdom of God, you're not going to find it necessarily in the Old Testament, you're going to, but you're going to clearly find its idea. It was primarily seen in Israel. Remember the idea of God's people and God's place under God's rule? This idea of this kingdom existing. But when we get to the New Testament, we understand that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than one nation in the Middle East. The kingdom of God, when we understand the fullness of what it was designed and meant to be, when it's going to be fully realized in the coming of the Messiah, we understand that the kingdom of God is no longer centered on a geographical place with a distinct group of people, but rather extends to all peoples, all people groups, and no longer limited to a geographical place. And the inauguration of this kingdom happened when Jesus came. This is him inaugurating this kingdom. It's not yet in its fullest, uh, fullest sense, 
There's this idea of the already and not yet. Already the kingdom of God is at hand, but it's not yet in its fullest form. We still have something yet to anticipate. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks when we wrap up this series. Jesus' day, many would have understood the kingdom to have been more political in nature. They were looking, a lot of them were looking for a political Messiah, a political Savior. They were looking for someone to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, at least to defeat the Romans and push them out so that they could kind of have their own rule, their own sense of autonomy. Jesus was arrested later on in the gospel accounts. He's, he's arrested and he's, he goes on trial. And it's when he's, Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate's asking him various questions in John chapter 18. Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews. And Jesus says this in John 18 verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. So he affirms that he is a king, but he says the kingdom, kind of kingdom you're thinking about uh, it's not that kind of kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. It's, it's not like the kingdoms of this world, nor is it restricted to just this world. It is something far greater than you know. In fact, Jesus would spend a long part of his ministry teaching about what the kingdom was like. A kingdom ethic. In fact, you go to the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and that's exactly what he's doing as he pulls his disciples away and he begins to teach them. He's teaching them what it means and what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So much of what he did and much of what he taught was centered upon helping people understand the nature of this kingdom. A second thing we could say is he helped them understand the priority of the kingdom. As he said to Pilate, this kingdom is, is not of this world. It's a kingdom that's eternal and its king will reign forever. No term limits on this king. And the very announcement of the kingdom, when Jesus comes and says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, the very announcement of a kingdom implies very directly the demand for submission and allegiance to its king. Much of what Jesus taught, as I said earlier, was whether directly or through parables even, was focused on this kingdom. In Matthew chapter 6, there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's instructing them not to be anxious about food or clothing, those kinds of things, but understand that the Lord will give you what you need when you need it. And then he concludes there in Matthew 6 verse 33, but he says this, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. Don't seek first food or clothing. God will give you what you need, but, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's helping align the, the right perspective of his followers that they, would be under, that they would understand that their priority is the kingdom of God, that they, that they are to live in light of that kingdom, that their allegiance and their submission ought to be viewed in such a way that they belong to a king, that their citizenship ultimately does not reside here in this earth, but to a kingdom that is eternal. And friends, one of the things that we see throughout the gospels is that everything we do ought to be informed by our allegiance to this king and his kingdom, everything. And one of the things that we can find hope in and confidence in is that even now in our, in our lives today, 
Today, Sunday, October the 13th, 2019, Jesus is at work preparing you for life eternal in this kingdom that will never end. Your relationships, your job, your family, and yes, even your suffering are context that God is using to equip you and fit you for heaven, but we could say for the kingdom. Then we need to understand the goal of the kingdom. I think sometimes we, we think the goal of the gospel, the good news of Jesus being saved from our sin and forgiven and those kinds of things, that the goal of all of that is to eventually escape this world and go to heaven. And that's, that's not wrong per se. It's true that, that God is doing a work and when he saves us, he forgives us of our sin and he, he begins this work and he's going to, to take us to heaven. We're going to think in a couple of weeks about what the new heavens and the new earth are really going to be. But sometimes I think that that's our goal, that we just escape this world and go to heaven. But I like what Russell Moore said in his book, Onward. He said, the goal of history is not after all escape to heaven, but the merger of heaven and earth. When the dwelling place of God transforms the material creation. And that's exactly what we see when Jesus came. His arrival was the inauguration of this kingdom. We're still waiting for the fullness of this kingdom to be settled, to be realized. But the goal is not simply to escape this world and go to heaven. The goal one day will be, under, under, as we understand it from, from, from biblical revelation, for the Old Testament and to the New, especially in Revelation, that God is making a new heavens and a new earth, that, that God is coming here and he's going to renew all things. He's going to restore Eden. And friends, if that is the goal, that when Christ comes again, that he's going to make all things new, if that is the goal, then everything we face now is not a waste. Everything we face now is fitting us for that final day when Christ returns to make all things new and bring the fullness of his kingdom into, a, into reality forever. Everything you and I face, every, every struggle we go through, every, every relationship that we have, every job that we work, every conversation that we have, every experience that we go through is at work for our good. God working all things together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ so that we will be with him forever in this everlasting kingdom. So we see that God's kingdom is present, though it's not present in its fullness. It is at hand, which leads me to number three, that God's gospel is advancing. We see here that God's timing is perfect. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus comes and he begins this ministry. He begins to announce the kingdom of God is at hand and he begins to preach the gospel of God. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Gospel is just a word that means good news. Gospel of God in saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel, he does so while announcing the kingdom, and both are very much related. 
The kingdom of God having to do with God's reign and, and power over really everything, but specifically over the, the saving reign of, of himself over his people. And the gospel being the good news, or we could say the means by which God secures people into the kingdom. You're not born naturally into this kingdom. You don't enter this world already a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's, it's not like your residency in this country or any other country for that matter. If you're born here, you've, you've got automatic citizenship. That's not how this works in this kingdom. You're not automatically born into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. This is exactly what Jesus is going to, 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 to unfold throughout his earthly ministry and then die and be raised to accomplish it. In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter four, early on in Jesus' ministry, we're told of the time when he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he was there and there would be various readings of scripture in the synagogue in this day and Jesus stood up to give a particular reading and he was handed a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. Particularly Isaiah chapter 61, verse one and two. We pick up in Luke chapter four, verse 17, with that scene. And we read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you know Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you know that Jesus stopped and did not read the rest of verse 2. He stopped just shy of the text that goes on to speak of the Lord's vengeance, which is the very next few words right after right after he says to proclaim the Lord's favor. Why did he stop? Because the time between his first and second coming is the year of the Lord's favor. It is the time of gospel proclamation. It is the time when invitations are extended to everyone for entrance into this kingdom. There is a day of vengeance that's coming, but that day is yet to come because this is the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus comes announcing the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, there's a day of vengeance coming, but now the, the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and the question is, well, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with you? Is, is this still a reality that we experience? And I would say, absolutely. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The same message Jesus preached is the same message that is true today. There's coming a day, though, when this will no longer be an opportunity for you. Jesus is announcing, listen, the kingdom is at hand and there is opportunity for you to enter into it. And the way through which you enter into it comes through the gospel. And he says, if you want entrance into this kingdom, then you would repent and believe in the gospel. To repent, simply a call to turn from your sin, call from any kind of effort to save yourself, a call to turn from any kind of substitute savior, whether that's you or someone else, 
a call to turn away from all of that which would keep you in bondage, to repent, to turn from, to turn from those things and believe, to put your hope in, to put your trust in the one who can save you. This is, this, is the, this is the biblical response when the gospel is proclaimed. You don't need all these fancy things of, of how people would respond. You, you need to simply repent and believe. That's, that's what the gospel calls you to. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, praise God, you're here. We're thankful you're here. We hope you keep coming. And you're thinking about this kingdom and you're thinking, well, I'm not in that kingdom yet, but it seems like the Lord is stirring your heart to want to be in that kingdom. And that is a miraculous work of God that he does in the heart of sinners. Those of us in this room who claim to be Christians, we, we didn't come up with that idea on our own. It was the work of God in us that, that opened our eyes to the beauty of truth of who Jesus is and drew us to himself. And friend, if that is you today and you, you sense that, you, right there where you sit, you can say, Lord, I am a sinner and I want to turn from my sin. I want to quit trusting in myself. I want to quit trusting in the things of this world. And I want to put my hope in Jesus. You don't need to get up and walk an aisle to do that. You don't need to sign a card or raise a hand. Friend, you can do that right there. Turn from your sin and put your hope in Christ. This is, this is how you enter the kingdom. This is Jesus' Jesus' message to the nations today. My kingdom is at hand. And if you want to bow your knee to me as the king, Jesus would say, if you want to be part of this glorious kingdom, then turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ because he is the one, though he is king, he humbled himself and became a man. And he lived life as a man. He lived life of perfect righteousness. He obeyed the law of God fully. Where Adam failed in the garden, remember that one law that Adam had, don't eat from this tree? Adam failed miserably, but Jesus accomplished righteousness because he never sinned. He never failed in obedience to, when it came to obedience to the law. And yet he was crucified on a cross to bear the punishment, the shame, the burden, the guilt of our sin so that the full judgment against sin once and for all would be leveled upon him at the cross as he shed his blood for sinners and he died. But three days later he was raised, showing his power and his victory over death, sin, and hell once and for all. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's promised to come again. Listen, friends, it is him where your hope must rest. It is in him, this perfect lamb, this better Adam, this better Moses, this one who is the son of David who would come and reign on the throne forever. Put your hope in him because he is the true Passover lamb and the true king which makes him our true redeemer. You see, Jesus came proclaiming because he came providing. And he came providing because he was the one that God had promised. Paul summarized it quite well in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. Paul said, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus Christ, he's the point of the Bible, Old Testament and new. He came as the true and better Adam. He came as the promised seed. He came as the lamb that was slain. He came as the true and better temple. He came as the king whose throne would last forever. He came as the servant who would bear the sins of many 
and give a righteousness we could have never earned on our own. Friends, we look back to God's promises. And even amidst all the darkness, even amidst all the the, the roadblocks that we might think exist, amidst all of that, amidst all the chaos, Jesus Christ came and fulfilled everything that God had promised. And friends, as we wait for the second coming of our King, to the fulfillment of promises still yet made, we do so, we wait with confidence, don't we? Because just as sure as he came the first time, he's coming again the second time. Because God kept his promise, we can say with confidence, won't he do it again? Won't he be faithful yet again when Jesus comes and makes all things new? Praise God that his promises never fail and that all of them find their yes in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for what you've done. Lord, we confess that we would have never come up with this kind of plan on our own. Lord, we would have not even seen our sin for what it is left to ourselves. Yet, God, you have revealed yourself in your word and you have revealed this amazing plan and work of redemption that you have orchestrated, Lord, over hundreds and thousands of years of time. Father, it was when the fullness of time had come, it was at your determined hour that Jesus came and accomplished everything that we need. And Father, we realize that it's been several thousand years since that day. But Father, we realize that you're working on a timeline that is far beyond our comprehension. And as we wait for his second coming, that you would help us to do so with great confidence and hope because we can look back and see, Lord, so clearly that you do exactly as you promise. Father, would you encourage us with this word today? Would you help us to cling faithfully and firmly to our great Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we no longer live in the shadows of promise because it has been fulfilled in Christ. Help us to delight in him and to follow him all of our days, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.